Hello, everybody. It's Tim. It is the honor roll episode 10, I think. Yeah, I've hit a I've hit a bit of a wall lately, but this is the honor roll. This is kind of a special thing I do every so often. It was every week. Now it's whatever. Uh, it's whenever I watch five new horror movies, I sit down, I talk about them, and then the ones I really like, I put on my honor roll, which is what I'll choose my top 10 horror movie list at the end of the year my top 10 list at the end of the year so yeah yeah that's about it it's it's pretty simple really it's just a way for me to keep up on new horror movies so if you want early access to this and all of our other bonus episodes here at the midwest podcast network check out our patreon patreon.com backslash midwest pod net we've got all sorts of cool stuff going on right now the game nerds are always doing fun bonus stuff willie and i and Nikki just sat down and recorded a fun Tiny Terror that's up right now for for Patreon members. Uh, Westworld FM is also back. So yeah, so check it out, patreon.com backslash Midwest Podnet. A dollar, a buck. We'll get you all sorts of cool stuff and it will help us out at the same time. So thank you very much to all of our Patreon subscribers. So first up, I am going to talk about let's get let's dump jump right into this. I am going to talk about Wormwood Apocalypse. So I am new to the Wormwood franchise. Well, I guess it's a franchise now, I guess. I don't know what constitutes a franchise. How many movies in a series does it take to qualify as a franchise is what I'm asking. So if it's two, then the Wormwood is a franchise. Worm but this is Wormwood Apocalypse. Anyway, I just watched the first movie, the first Wormwood movie. Oh, God, I don't remember what it was called right now. Road of the Dead? No, that sounds wrong. Wormwood 1. Um, I just watched the first movie a month or two ago, and I was a fan. And, yeah, I think I'm a, I'm a fan now. I'm a worm or a woody or a wormwoody. I might be a bandwagon fan, though, unfortunately. Uh, so, listen, please, to all of the OG Wormwood fans out there, don't worry. I am not going to be running around in like a brand new spanking new like Wormwood jersey that I got online. I hate I hate those people too, those bandwagoners. I bet you there's like a lot of Dodger fans now all of a sudden. Um, but you know who I'm talking about. Um, I will not do that. I respect you. And I respect your love of the franchise from the beginning because honestly, you deserve credit because the original Wormwood, those OG Wormwood fans jumped on this train back in 2014 when the first movie came out and when like zombie fatigue was probably really setting in for a lot of people. I remember it really setting in for a lot of people. Um, Walking Dead had already been on for a few seasons. Um, the Resident Evil movies were getting a bit long in the tooth. I think when people really got exhausted with the subgenre of zombie movies was when World War Z came out and that's no judgment on the quality of the movie but like now we were getting pg-13 zombie movies and i remember there being a big bash backlash against getting pg-13 zombie movies but we also had stuff but we also had excellent stuff at the time like pro wrestlers versus zombies starring kurt angle roddy piper and matt Hardy. so check that out if you get a chance i think the wormwood movies are better and probably more worth your time but yeah you never know you might find some uh fun stuff there but you wormwood fans you did not give in you championed this first movie this australian dawn of the dead meets mad max movie in 2014 and then you it led to a sequel that just came out a couple months ago seven or eight years later and i'm glad it did seeing this was coming out prompted me to finally watch the original because i probably was a little bit um burnt out on zombie movies at the time of its release as well i think it just slipped by me and i never got around to it but 
I liked it. I liked the original a lot. It's an unpretentious kind of B-action movie style zombie splatter fest. Um, the, the Dawn of the Dead meets Mad Max is a pretty good summation of it. But And by B-action movies, I'm talking about like the B-sides, not, uh, not Terminator 2, but Commando. Um, and I like this new one, Apocalypse, pretty much as, the, as much as I like the first movie. They both have a ton of energy. I will say it did take me a minute in the sequel to kind of get my feet underneath me plot-wise for whatever reason, but that's probably just me. I have issues anytime there are more than like four characters in a movie, especially a sequel like this where the characters have aged a little bit. The actors look a little bit, a little bit different. Some of the first act of the movie was me trying to remember which characters they were because they did look a little different, but this one, the sequel, much like the first movie, hits the ground running. It drops you into the world right away, which also may be why it took me a minute for took a minute for me to get my bearings. It does commit the sin of playing Red Right Hand, though, the song Red Right Hand, which is a song that I like, but we need to retire. Absolutely retire from movies at this point. I think that includes any further Scream sequel to retire Red Right Hand. I don't want to hear it in any more movies. There's also a cool moment early on in the movie that kind of won me over, which is one of the characters has to hold a long gymnastics pose above a, above a zombie. And this part is great because gymnastics isn't a sport you see in action or horror movies very often, like reference outside of like Jim Cotta, of course, and uh, the Lost World Jurassic, Jurassic Park for whatever reason. The movie itself, it's pretty familiar. But it and the original both have they both have like their video game style charms. I think there is I I understand like there are a million zombie movies out there. So if you're tired of them, maybe this isn't the one for you. And I have stated in this in the past, though, I do not care. I would like more zombie movies. Make more of them. We make a ton of everything nowadays. So go ahead. Just make like nine Walking Dead TV shows. I don't I don't care anymore. I don't I don't have to watch them if I don't want to. Nobody is forcing anybody to watch these all these zombie movies. Uh, I don't think at least. But anyway, without spoiling too much, there is some stuff involving like a mad scientist and pills and a Frankenstein uh, monster zombie in this one. I really dug it. So there we go. Um, I dug this whole movie. I like the Wormwood movies. I would be okay seeing more of these Wormwood movies. I hope that they're a little bit more frequent than every seven or eight years. So thank you to all of the OG, the original Wormwood franchise fans, because it wasn't a franchise when you you folks jumped on board. So you didn't give in to zombie fatigue in the mid-10s, and now I have a zombie movie franchise that I champion and like. So Wormwood Apocalypse is on the honor roll. It's a ton of fun. All right, next up, we've got a big one here that I watched a while back, so bear with me as I try to recall certain things from it. But uh, here we go. Good movie, very good movie, The Black Phone. Uh, It's very tense, funny, full of heart. A lot of stuff I really, really dug about The Black Phone. But there may be a couple of things that stop me from loving it. Uh, Scott Scott Derrickson, the director, very talented director, obviously, and he's done movies that a lot of people like a little bit more than I do. Sinister, The Exorcism of Emily Rose, that first Doctor Strange movie, a lot of people really love those movies, and I've never quite gotten there with them. I think they're interesting, I like them, but maybe I just don't connect with them as like I do with some of the other filmmakers, horror filmmakers. I will say this, this is probably my favorite movie of his. Yes, I liked it more than Hellraiser Inferno. And you think I'm joking, but I kind of like Hellraiser Inferno. If there's one movie in that awful, awful franchise of Hellraiser that I think deserves a reevaluation, 
similar to Halloween 3, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Friday the 13th Part 5, I think it's Inferno. The only one in that dreadful, awful series past like part two that I think maybe we should take another look at because I like it. I can't remember. He may have took his name off that, though, taking his name off that. I can't remember. So, Scott, if Scott Derrickson, if you did, I'm sorry. Uh, One more thing on Derrickson before we get the review going proper here. I think creatively, maybe not money wise, but I think creatively, though, everything revolving around Dr. Strange 2 worked out well for him and his now writing partner, the artist formerly known as Massa Worm from Ain't It Cool News, C. Robert Cargill. I liked Doctor Strange the multi in the multiverse of madness, into the multiverse of madness. Doctor Strange 2, the one just came out. Um, I liked it a lot, actually, but its flaws are on a script level for sure for me, and I think some of it is the hoops that it has to, that it had to jump through to kind of connect it to the large, the larger MCU, Marvel Cinematic Universe. That movie is carried by Sam Raimi, his touch, and of course, the Pizza Papa for me. Also, the Black Phone ended up being a pretty solid hit for the duo. It's up over $130 million worldwide. I haven't checked in about a week to see what it's at, but critics liked it. It's got an 83% score on Rotten Tomatoes. Audiences seem to like it as well. So I really think with these two guys working in mid, mid-budget horror, I really like them there. I don't want to say it's where they belong, but I think they deliver in that realm, that kind of mid-budget, well, like the Black Phone and stuff like Sinister. Um, a few things in the Black Phone really, really work for me, and I want to touch on them first. First up, it's the mask. It's terrific. It's also very important to the film itself that that mask works. And I'm going to be honest, a lot of it hinges on the physicality of Ethan Hawke's performance as well. And we'll get to him in a second, but the mask is integral to the film. And I think it's phenomenal. The mask was created by Callisum studios, which is run by Tom Savini, the legendary Tom Savini and Jason Baker. Baker has done some work with Slipknot, the band Slipknot and WWE for the wrestling fans out there. This is the studio along with Savini, of course, that worked, uh, they did the Bray Wyatt mask, the fiend, uh, Baker talks in an interview about this, about, uh, the black phone, in an interview with Entertainment Weekly about how excited he was to make a universal monster with Tom Savini and how the guidance he was given by director Scott Derrickson was to make something that evoked the man who laughs, which is an old Paulini film starring Conrad Veidt. It's an old universal picture, a silent picture where the main character, it's a very iconic look, if you know it. It's also, it was the inspiration for the Joker, the Batman villain, the Joker, that look. Uh, it's the inspiration is seen in a lot of Rob Zombie films as well. I think it does this very well, by the way, the black phone and that mask. I think it evokes the man who laughs very well. I also, the man who laughs is a silent movie, which leads me to Ethan Hawke. Hawke is great in this. I've always liked Ethan Hawke. He he can be a bit much sometimes, uh, but I think it's charming. Let me explain it real quick. What I'm talking about when I say he could be a bit much. I've been watching that uh, Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward documentary on HBO called The Last Movie Stars, and it's very good, uh, especially if you're interested in that time period of Hollywood, that's uh, Hollywood, that 60s time period. It's a little bit self-important, but that's Hollywood, and I I'll never get tired of it, honestly. The self-importance of Hollywood will never wear thin with me. Uh, but the documentary features Ethan Hawke very excitedly calling up some of his Hollywood friends over Zoom to tell him he's discovered a transcript for a biography on Newman and Woodward, and he wants to, them to reenact the transcripts. And his how excited he is is very charming, very lovable. Uh, he wants to reenact these transcripts. So, like, he has George Clooney read the Paul Newman Paul Newman parts, for example. It works mostly. Anyway, I bring this up 
uh, because he because I said Ethan Hawke could be a bit much, and I want to explain myself. He calls, uh, I think, Mark Ruffalo on a Zoom call, and then he greets Ruffalo by saying, "How art thou?" <laughs> and I would have never, I would have hung up the phone right away. If anybody ever greets me on the phone with "How art thou?" See you later. Absolutely not. I'm never talking to you. Um, I almost shut off the documentary, but I didn't. And I'm glad I didn't. But that's kind of, that's Ethan Hawke in a nutshell for me. So he's earnestly self-important and I don't think that's a bad thing. And I also wouldn't be surprised to learn he takes his craft very seriously and I do respect that and I like that. And I I would, would not be surprised to learn if he studied a lot of old silent movies and built his performance in the black phone around those. He's terrific here. And the combination of him and the mask, those are the highlights of the movie for me. I think this might become an iconic horror performance as we get further away from it and as we see if maybe there are sequels or whatever. I don't think this needs a sequel, by the way. Let's talk about the kids in the movie, though, real quick. I like them. Kids are always divisive in movies, but I like this group and I thought they were natural, if not always perfect. I've always preferred kid performances that felt like they were kids more than I liked kid performances where they feel like they're weird robot actors. Uh, I've seen a couple of reviews call out the kid performances as distractingly bad in the black phone. And I just want to stick up for them real quick because I think they're pretty good. What holds this back for me though, I think from really loving the black phone at least after one viewing, well, there are two things. And I one of them will probably still be an issue for me on a rewatch. And the other, I think I need to forgive until a rewatch. Uh, first up is Eddie Ransome. He plays the brother character in this. And while I think he's wonderful and very funny in the role, you could delete his character from the movie and it probably wouldn't make a difference. Uh, they changed his character from the short story too. And it feels like padding. And without giving too much away from either the movie or the story, I think I prefer the short stories version of him a little better where he's just kind of a mess. Um, I found some of what occurs in this movie, his kind of um, detective work, to be a little bit distracting and, yeah, a little like padding. The other thing that I mentioned I want to single out, but I also want to wait until a rewatch to really make a final judgment on this, is there's a religious aspect to this movie. And Derrickson... An interview with Mick Garris on the Postmortem podcast, which is very good. It's he and C. Robert Cargill. Check it out. It's a Postmortem podcast interview with Mick Garris, and it's good. He talks about how this movie is about the horrors of being raised religious, and I I don't know. Uh, Jesus makes it out pretty good in this one, in my opinion, and I don't have an issue with that. Make whatever movie you want to make. I don't care. Uh, I just thought it. there's a pretty convenient scene with the younger sister near the end. That basically, for me, boils down boil down to like just saying, hey, you got to have faith, I guess. I don't know. Um, much like George Michael or Limp Bizkit. Anyway, this one, I'm going to put this on the honor roll with some reservations. Uh, I kind of want to watch this one more time before the end of the year once it's out wherever it ends up. Probably Peacock. I think it's well-crafted. I think it's tense. I think there's a great performance at the center with Hawk, an iconic villain crafted by him and the effects team. It also does a terrific job of capturing the 70s, that 70s feels that 70s feel. And I don't think it would have worked as well set in a different time period. Oh, and the sound in the movie. I'm not going to pretend to be a sound expert um, or a sound design expert, but the sound in this movie, the phone in particular, when it rang, it really, really stood out for me. So there you go. The black phone is on the honor roll. 
All right, so yeah, just so you know, we're going to talk about Nope here in a second, but there is, I just realized there is no rhyme or reason to how I'm talking about these movies because these are the two big ones are just smack dab in the middle. Here, I opened this bad boy with Wormwood Apocalypse, which rocks. But we're going to talk about Nope, Jordan Peele's Nope. I've talked a couple of times and I don't want to rehash it much. I had, I've kind of, I had kind of cooled on Jordan Peele and Jordan Peele related works lately. Movies, TV, I don't think any music. I don't know. Not sure, though. He may have, I don't know. Is he produced music? I don't know. Anyway, no need to rehash that because it's all in the past. Because I absolutely loved Nope. I think this is my favorite movie of the year. Maybe more than Jackass Forever, if you can believe it. Um, we'll see on that. I might need to walk that back. I have nothing bad to say about this movie. It turned me back into a Jordan fanboy for a couple of hours and like i said i cooled on him uh one thing i will say is this isn't a straight up horror movie like i think get out and us were this is a science fiction movie with elements of horror and comedy it's very inspired by early spielberg i'm thinking stuff like duel and close encounters and jaws jaws especially but there's also some scorsese thrown in i'm thinking of the last temptation of christ in one scene and quite a bit of tarantino as well sprinkled on top there's one sequence in particular that reminds me of Tarantino and just kind of the nonlinear aspect of it and how it works as a kind of a character short story, but it's one that's an absolute showstopper. The Gordy's home bit in this movie is an all-time great horror sequence, seriously. But even with all of those influences I've named, it's a Jordan Peele movie, first and foremost. Oh, there might be some Nolan thrown in, too, because I could only understand about 80% of the dialogue. But that might just be me me being old or the theater I saw it in. Uh, How can I talk about this movie without spoiling it? I thought all of the performances were great. It's the Kiki Palmer show, though, and everyone knows it. She's funny. She's magnetic. It's a star-making performance from the second she walks on screen. It's a movie with memorable side characters as well. One of them is a bit of a cartoon, but Michael Wincott is so damn fun in the role of the obsessed documentary documentarian. I do not care. I don't care. That's a bit. It's a bit cartoonish. It's probably the best word for it. Uh, the movie hammers that theme home, by the way. Filmmakers and their obsession with getting that impossible shot and humans reaching out for things that are beyond their graphs, graphs, and maybe they, maybe things that should be beyond us. It's like that old universal classic monster theme where some things, there are some things that man isn't supposed to know. And that's, that's pretty prevalent in this movie. It's been talked about a lot. It's about how the Hollywood machine uh, works and how it chews up people. It's a critique of old Hollywood Westerns and whitewashing. All of that is talked about a ton of reviews and it's definitely in there. What grabbed me the most though about Nope were some of the religious elements of the film. And I contrast this to the way that I think the black phone kind of clumsily handles those things where I think this is this I'll try carefully here for a variety of reasons, really, but Nope goes old Testament. And I love when horror movies, especially go old Testament, drag me to hell goes straight up old Testament. And it is one of our great old Testament horror movies. Uh, But the movie opens with a biblical quote from the prophet Nahum that says, I will pelt you with filth, I will treat you with contempt, and I will make you a spectacle. Excuse me. That is a quote from the Old Testament. And the characters in this movie are punished from the heavens for using animals as a spectacle, for profiting, profiting off of the animal's work. 
due to their own greed. It's a movie that argues that some animals, creatures, aren't meant to be tamed, aren't meant to be put on display. And you know what? It, maybe it's not humans, human beings' job to control the Earth, but to be stewards of it. And the Earth, the universe, it's a, it's a scary place. And there are things everywhere that can kill us. And Nope makes that very clear. But that's the stuff that I really latched onto is that kind of, uh, the kind of biblical theme of how how humans are supposed to be stewards of of the earth of the planet and not control it. So there you go. Uh, nope is awesome. I loved it. It is absolutely on the honor roll. I didn't dig much into it here for fear of spoilers because everything I would want to talk about this in this movie is just flat out spoiling it. But really loved it. And yeah, it's probably my favorite movie of the year so far. So there you go. Maybe spoilers for my top ten. I'll revisit this at the end of the year though. The Incantation. This is on Netflix now. Taiwanese found footage movie. Full transparency here. Because I'm an honest person. I think everybody knows that about me. I don't remember this movie. <laughs> I watched it like a month ago. Now, it's a found footage movie. I know that. I perused some reviews, actually, to refresh my memory here in the IMDb page. And I remember there being some really terrific moments in The Incantation. Incantation. I think this is a movie where someone bangs their head against the wall because they're possessed, and that's always uh, that's always effective. Always like to see that. I've been in a found footage movie lately too. I go through moods. I was in an Asian horror mood about a month or two ago, so this was both. I should have liked it more, but what can you do? Uh, yeah, I think uh, that might have been my problem with it. With this movie, it was all a little bit too familiar. For me, at least, uh, it was at the time I watched it, whenever that was. Uh, it's like a month ago now, lay on. Uh, none of it was particularly engaging. It also jumps back and forth between in the narrative between past and present. And I was confused. <laughs> I'll just level with you. I was very confused. Anyway, um, well, I didn't like this movie very much. I liked that it's on Netflix. It's another movie that I wish they would do a better job of, you know, like uh, promoting or alerting their subscribers. It's on there because I can see some people really liking it but they seem to only promote the gray man and they love to <laughs> promote that bad boy uh this is a taiwanese horror movie yeah i mentioned that it's in netflix it's all in taiwan uh this is the highest grossing film in taiwan last year it was and the top taiwanese horror movie of all time and it was called the scariest taiwanese film ever i'll be honest i don't think i've seen enough taiwanese horror to pass judgment uh, the sadness. I watched this earlier. That was scary in a different way, though. I loved Detention last year, but I think this is quote-unquote scarier. Mon Mon Monsters, I think, was another one. Um, but I think this goes more... This one is more scary, so yeah, I guess. Sure. <laughs> uh, it's a more haunted house style. Found footage. Uh, uh, Taiwanese movies are harsh, though. They go pretty hard. But uh, this one, yeah, no, it's not on the honor roll. Uh, I wasn't crazy about it, but eh, maybe you will be. It's on Netflix now, uh, buried under everything else that they have on there. And finally, everybody, they slash them. A very schlocky, excellent title for a not schlocky enough movie. What a waste of Kevin Bacon's return to summer camp this is. Listen, I think this movie means well. I think this movie has no idea what it wants to be. Part of it wants to be a creepy... Oh, this is on Peacock now. I have been uh, rolling through these things. I forgot to tell you where to watch these. Uh, you can watch Black Phone and Nope in the theaters now. Uh, Wormwood I rented. What's that? The Incantation 
is on Netflix. This is on Peacock now. Uh, they dumped, they stripped, they dumped it. Let's be honest with what a lot. I know Prey is getting, I haven't seen it yet, but I know Prey is getting a lot of great reviews. These straight to streaming movies, especially the Peacock ones, they're just dumping these things out there because they know they won't make any money. But yeah, back to they slash them. Uh, part of it wants to be a creepy mystery movie. Part of it wants to be a serious drama about the horrors of a, a like a gay conversion camp. Part of it wants to be a slasher set in a gay conversion camp. It's all over the map, really. Uh, there are things I liked about it. I actually think the most effective moments are the parts where it's a creepy movie revolving around just how awful these conversion camps are. Especially the stuff that revolves around the character of Jordan. The problem with Jordan is they get lost in the shuffle with just the amount, the sheer amount of characters this movie has. I think this movie, I think I read it came about because producer Jason Bloom of Blumhouse. Um, is it Blum or Bloom? I've heard it pronounced both. Uh, so he watched a conversion camp documentary on Netflix. I don't remember the name of this. I, I know it came out a while back and he decided he wanted to make a horror movie about it. And I think there's a very good horror movie to be made in that idea. I just wish, wish this movie would have picked one subgenre and stuck to it. It also contains some very good performances by the kid, kids. I think Kevin Bacon is game as well, but it never comes together. So this is um, this is where I get into spoilers because we're, we're going to do slasher search here because this is sold as a slasher and the title makes it seem like it's a slasher. So they slash them. So we're going to spoil it. If you want to skip or end your listening here, because you want to uh, watch this movie and want to go in completely unspoiled, because I'm going to spoil the hell out of it at this point, doing slasher search. It's not on the honor roll. I did not enjoy my time with it. But the slasher search takes a look at five categories. I rank the slasher character itself, not so much the movie, although there's some, there's some mixing of the two. Backstory, motive, kills, victims, and look slash appearance. I didn't do that on purpose. I've been that since the beginning, just so you know. So spoilers from here on out for they slash them. Not on the honor roll. All right, backstory. This is where I'm going to get really spoilery. Because this is pretty convoluted, this backstory, I'm going to give it a shot here. The killer is Anna Shlumsky, uh, my girl from my girl. Uh, not the actress. Uh, that would have been better. <laughs> that would have been awesome if Anna Shlumsky was going around killing the counselors. The bad people at the uh, conversion camp. I would have loved that. My Girl. Well, maybe a My Girl revenge story on the bees would be a good premise for a horror movie. Hey, Bloom, get that in production. So, the whole time we think it's like it's someone, a counselor at the camp named Molly. Now, we see Molly killed at the beginning of the movie in a pretty good stalk and slash scene that opens that's the first, the kind of stinger, the opening, uh, the opening act of the movie, uh, the opening scene of the movie. This scene actually ends up, though, being a major problem with this movie because it sets up the slasher element right off the bat and the movie has no interest in revisiting that element for most of the runtime. And it's a pretty good scene too. So we see Molly get killed and Anna Chlumsky is playing a woman named Angie. Angie attended the camp as a girl and it was hell for her. So that's the backstory. So she's taken Molly's place, I should say. Everybody thinks it's Molly at the camp, but really it's Angie. That's the backstory. Uh, I'm giving this a three because while I think I remember them explaining away why they don't recognize Molly and are confused during the big reveal at the end, I also had to give, I, I given up caring at the point. It gets a three. Motive. Angie. Anna Chomsky wants revenge on the camp. 
she says at the end of the movie, she wants to shut down every camp in it, in this existence by killing people. So very lofty goal here. And I think this, honestly, this is probably the strength of the slasher search for me. It's a pretty simple, effective motive. I'm good with it. I don't understand why she is so shy about killing these people, though, throughout most of the movie. But I'm going to go eight for a motive. It's a good motive. Let's shut these things down. Victims. I like the kids in this movie, but they aren't really the victims. And I was kind of glad because you feel so bad for them anyway because of how they've been mistreated and how they've been judged and how they've had to live their lives that you don't want to see them. I Maybe that's the issue with this movie is like, it does not want to make these kids the victims any more than they already are, and that's totally fine. But maybe don't do a slasher movie involving kids at a counselor. So they're all likable. I feel for them, and I'm actually glad they were the yeah the victims because they are they're too likable. But I have to say about the kids real quick. This movie features probably the worst or at least the cringiest scene. I have seen in a movie all year and it's the scene where they all sing and know every single word to the song perfect by pink. It's like a big musical production number. And I need to reiterate here. They don't just sing the chorus. They know every word to pinks. I thought minor hit perfect. I could be wrong here. I don't know where it topped the charge charts, but not just the chorus, all of these kids in 2022, um, know the word, every single word to this song. Uh, the adults are okay. Slasher victims, because you don't really care if they get killed or not. I just wish they got, I just wish more of them got killed, honestly. There are too many characters in this movie, too. Uh, during the big pink musical number, there are like two or three kids that show up, but I swear I'd never seen the rest of the movie. And I just went, who the hell is that? <laughs> who are these people? They keep showing up, these kids. Uh, five for victims. Uh, yeah, five. Kills. Kills. Next up, kills. Bloodless. Boring. Nothing good here. A lot of uh, throwing blood, like buckets of blood at a window or a door or the wall. I did like the opening scene. I thought that was effective. Too effective, though, for the rest of the movie. It's a very dry slasher movie, and that's because it really does not want to be a slasher movie at all. It desperately wants to be a coming-of-age drama, and those bits are good, but it doesn't fit... Some of those bits are good. Some of them are the pink musical number. I wish they would have just made that, honestly. There is an okay electrocution at one point with one of those um, shock therapy shock therapy machines. I'll go three and a half on kills. That was all right. So that'll bump it up. Finally, look and appearance of the slasher herself, Anna Chomsky. <laughs> I was just picturing her going on a murder's rampage. I haven't seen her in a while either. This is what she, oh, wait, was she on? She was on the, uh, yeah, she was on that show. Everybody liked on HBO. You know the one, right? She was on Veep. Was that her? Sure. I don't know. Look at appearance. She just kind of wears a generic cloak or something. The mask is fine, I guess. One half is all dried up and desiccated and stitched to another normal half. It's not particularly memorable. The the effort on this seems to be about the same level as the level as the effort put into the slasher element of the movie itself. It's just kind of, I guess we got to make it. Uh, they need a look, so let's throw a cloak and uh, let's half and half mask because it's like the title. Three, see you later. Sticks, awful. Three for backstory. Eight for motive. Five for victims. Three and a half for kills. Three for appearance, bringing our total to twenty-two and a half. 
I don't know. I fail math a lot. That uh, um, the Jack in the Box, I think, is still the leader right now in Slasher Search, and I've been uh, slacking on this, so he might end up winning this bad boy. Who knows? I think. All right, I'm out of here. That's it for this week. Take care of each other. Thank you, seriously, everybody, for listening to this silly thing I do once every few weeks. The honor roll. I'll be back whenever I watch five movies. Uh, Willie and I are going to be back talking, and I think this should be out before that episode comes out. We're going to be talking about whatever we want to talk about. We're mixing things up a little bit. I think we're probably both going to talk about Prey, the new movie. Uh, Not the MC Hammer song, Prey. Enjoy my little jokes. I'm going to get out of here, though. Patreon.com backslash Midwest Podnet. You can get this in all of our other bonus episodes early. But seriously, thank you, everybody, for listening, and take care of yourselves.